This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.16, Answers at Any Price, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan and also running low on salt. <laughs> and I'm Nina, Gundam noob, but ready to pilot the Gundam after two hours of secret simulator training. <laughs> we are discussing episode 16 in Japan, 15 in the United States, Sela's Agony, or Sela Shutsugeki. This week, we'll be talking about Armies and Salt, the name of the new Xeon antagonist, art looting, sung pottery, siblings divided by war, and some weird geography quirks. But before we get started with the episode today, we have a few special thank yous. Thanks go out to Dan, Johnny, Go, Brodel, and everyone else who reached out to us this past week to suggest Gunkla for Nina. Woo! We are still taking suggestions, so if you have some ideas, send them our way. You know, Nina, the holidays are coming up. I'm keenly aware. <laughs> I have not done decorating yet. I wonder if any of our listeners are thinking about what sort of gift they could get Mobile Suit Breakdown. <gasps> they are very nice listeners. So considerate. But really, Mobile Suit Breakdown is a gift that you give <laughs> to all of your friends and family by telling them about our podcast and encouraging them to listen and then checking to see if they did listen and reminding them that they need to. Maybe just put it on at your holiday party. <laughs> That's a bit much, but... It's a great option for anyone you know who's traveling and happens to be into Gundam or anime or Japan. Or history or podcasts or the sound of our lovely smooth voices. We would also love it if you would leave us a review. Apple Podcasts is best, but we are happy for reviews wherever you listen to us. And if you want to get in touch with us during this holiday season, you can always contact us on our Facebook page, on Twitter, on Instagram now, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And you can find links to all of our social media pages on our website, GundamPodcast.com. And now back to Gundam. It turns out Shutsugeki means a sortie or a sally in the military sense. This is another episode where the title gives away the twist. Maybe they just didn't worry about spoilers back then. There is a kind of storytelling that is not predicated on suspense. Apparently that was a thing in TV shows of the era. So a few episodes back, Tom made the executive decision that we were no longer going to watch the very end of the episode where they do the next time on because it typically would give away too many of the key and exciting points from the future episode, removing all suspense. Well, we're not going to spoil anything for you, except what we already spoiled by telling you the title of the episode. So now, the recap. The White Base travels west across Central Asia, buffeted by storms and unable to contact Federation HQ. They reach the rendezvous point, but there is no sign of their contact, and the crew keep constant watch. A jeep appears out of the storm, and Bright, accompanied by Ryu and Hayato, goes to investigate. It is their contact, injured and exhausted, but with instructions from General Revel that they are to cross the Caspian Sea and participate in Odessa Day, an operation five days hence, to seize strategic mines currently held by Zeon's Captain McVeigh. 
An earlier combat ruined the White Base's stores of salt, and they are now running dangerously low. Wright determines they will go to Lob Lake, a salt lake not far from their current location, to replenish their stores before continuing west. Rambaral and Haman continue their pursuit of the White Base, checking in with the local captain, McVeigh, for information and support. McVeigh avoids speaking to them, concerned that through Rambaral, Dozo might learn the truth about the mines. Arriving at Lob Lake, the White Base crew discover nothing but sand and a dried up lake bed. Their maps are out of date, and the mysterious Lob Lake moves! They have no choice but to change their heading, towards the lake's other possible location. En route, they are approached by a fast-moving ship they cannot identify, Rambaral's Gallop. As everyone heads to battle stations, and the mobile suits are made ready, Sela steals the Gundam, lying to the crew about having special orders, and takes the Gundam to the battlefield. The Gallop deploys its own mobile suits, Rambaral in the Goof, and Kozin and Akus in Zaku. Amuro in the gun cannon tries to cover Sela's retreat, but Sela will not leave the battlefield until she can contact a Zeon soldier. Rambaral hides the Goof in the sand, tricking Sela into a trap. Using the heat rod to destroy one of the Gundam's feet, he and his men try to capture the partially disabled mobile suit. Akus begins destroying the Gundam's cameras, rendering Sela mostly blind inside the cockpit. She panics, struggling to get free. Just in time, Amuro arrives in the gun cannon and destroys Akus's Zaku, freeing Sela and the Gundam. Shaken by Akus's death, Rambaral orders a retreat and moves to rendezvous with the Gallop. However, Amuro disables and captures the one remaining Zaku, with Kozin still inside. Back on the bridge, Sela tells Bright and Mirai she wanted to prove she could fight as well as the men, but Bright doesn't seem to believe her. They must make an example of her, and she is given three days of solitary confinement as punishment. Fine by me, is Sela's calm reply. As Ryu escorts her to her cell, they run into Frabo and a few others, taking food to the prisoner. Sela offers to take it in herself, and it is then that we learn the real reason she stole the Gundam, the real reason she needs to speak to a Zeon soldier. Whispering to avoid being heard by the White Base crew, she asks for news of Shar. Once alone in her cell, Sela cries tears of relief. Her brother is alive. As the episode draws to a close, the White Base finally makes it to Lob Lake, their salt crisis solved. We actually start today on kind of a tragic note because we are recording this on November 29th, 2018. And this is the day that news broke that Gundam writer Yamamoto Yu has died. He died a few days ago. He was 71 years old and he was the author for 11 Gundam episodes, including this one. He wrote many of the most powerful and significant Gundam episodes, including Captain Paolo's death in episode four, Garma's death in episode 10, and quite a few deaths to come. I was going to say, if he wrote this episode, he's one of their better writers. I thought this episode was very strong. Yes, he was a great writer. It's a tragic loss. Not the least because in 2014, he started work on an anime version of an original concept of his. So it would have been really exciting to see that come to fruition. The last few episodes have seen the white base and the characters cover a lot of ground. It seems like a good place to start is a simple, where are we? What are we doing? And this episode is good enough to give us actual answers to both of those. The white base is in Central Asia and it's heading west. And they are trying to make contact with a messenger from the Federation sent by General Revel. And when they finally do, the soldier has been wounded. He's on death's door. 
I found myself wondering in that scene, how does it not occur to any of them to ask him how he came to be wounded? <laughs> like, yes, orders first. That's the most important thing. But if there are Zeons around, isn't that a thing you would want to know? Maybe they assume it was just the sandstorm. But that's an awfully big assumption to make when you know that you're in enemy territory. Maybe they just didn't have time. He does sort of die right there. The last couple of episodes, Federation soldiers who are not members of the white base crew last about a minute. Yeah. <laughs> They're very breakable, apparently. We also, thanks to that soldier's last moments, learn what the big offensive is that's been planned. Odessa Day, which they say in English, which of course is reminiscent of D-Day. <laughs> Less reminiscent of D-Day. They are planning on retaking some strategically significant mines that are currently held by one of Caecilia's subordinates, Makuve. Is that not how you say it? Well, this is interesting. I... <laughs> I find his name really interesting because what they seem to be saying in the Japanese sounds a lot like Makvei or Makvei. Oh, yeah. But it's spelled M apostrophe Q-U-V-E. And so a reasonable English reader would see that and go, oh, Makuve, which is how I've seen it pronounced elsewhere. But in the anime, in the Japanese, it seems to be Makvei. And I think that's probably supposed to be <laughs> the actual name. M-A-C-V-E-I-G-H. Yep. I think that's the name that it's at least based on. Okay. Uh, so who knows how I will pronounce it. I will probably be just as inconsistent with that as I am with Kishiria, Kaecilia. I've gotten pretty consistent about Shar now. I'm much better about Shar. So what we're saying is don't add us about McVeigh. <laughs> I feel like McVeigh. we have also started to turn Fra into Frau. And I, I honestly <laughs> couldn't tell you which of those is correct. I think the way they say it in the show is Fra and it's spelled Fra. I think it's just that it's so close to the word Frau. <laughs> 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 that we start pronouncing it that way by accident. The reaction of the bridge crew to the news about Odessa Day is actually very interesting, particularly Bright and Sela, who both make comments about, does this mean we're being incorporated into the regular forces? Mm -hmm. And Sela, who says, well, we're not really part of the army, are we? And Bright, who it sort of felt like Bright has wanted to be more like the army, wanted to be incorporated into the army, but now he seems kind of uncomfortable about it. And later, when they run out of salt and Bright makes the decision to go to Lob Lake in search of more salt and then to continue searching for salt even when Lob Lake is not there, because apparently it's a wandering lake. And Mirai comments on how uncharacteristic that is of him to be so flexible and to justify it as, oh, there will be fewer Xeon forces if we go around via the lake. And I wonder if that's not because Bright is kind of uncomfortable with the idea of being incorporated into the regular forces for this Odessa Day operation. I'm not sure. I think the fact that he has a ready excuse for what they're doing, a ready explanation, means he at least acknowledges that he is going to need to explain to someone and need a reasonable explanation for their actions, but he has gotten very used to the latitude of being his own boss, right? Of being in charge of the ship and not really having anybody that he directly reports to. Yeah, I thought it was interesting when he introduces himself to the other Federation soldier. He doesn't say, I'm bright, commander of the white base. Mm -hmm. He says, I'm bright, responsible for the white base. I can't be sure. That might be a very sort of Japanese expression when you're in charge of something to mm -hmm. say that you're the one responsible for it. We might have to do some some further research on that. I want to research wandering lakes. I bet that's based on a real thing. Oh, yeah. I'm sure that's a real <laughs> thing that happens. And maybe it doesn't happen with the regularity that the <laughs> Lob Lake is described as having in the show. Every 500 years. 
It was sort of a silly line, but I did appreciate that it gave the operator a chance to point out that there are no GPS satellites operating right now. Mm-hmm. That they did have those before the war, but they've all been destroyed. Their reason for going to the lake is it's supposed to be a salt water lake, a saline lake, and they're hoping to be able to extract some salt. And at first glance, that can feel like a little bit of an excuse for this side mission, right? Oh, we need a reason for them not to go directly to the rendezvous point. But it could just as easily be, you know, attempting to draw attention to some of the more mundane aspects of warfare and how significant they are. We have a lot of truisms about an army marches on its stomach and about the importance of logistics and transportation and food to morale, to efficiency, to the ability of the army to function. And we haven't yet had to deal with those logistical issues in a concrete way. You know, we've seen them get resupply, but that's always been kind of amorphous crates, right? We don't really know what's there. While it felt a little silly in the episode, they really could run into serious problems running out of something as simple as salt. We are introduced to the mysterious McVeigh. Our new antagonist. They make him look villainous. He's almost emaciated looking. Very sharp cheekbones, nose, chin, slightly droopy eyes, longish, sort of wavy, curly hair. A little reminiscent of Garma, except for the curly hair, because it's purple as well, and he is sort of Garma-shaped, slender. Garma looked slender, but not unhealthily so, except in that first episode when he was kind of yellowish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) McVeigh looks unhealthy. Yes. And his behavior in that first scene when we meet him is ultra-villainous. He flicks an antique vase to listen to the chime it makes, talks about the history of the vase. He's clearly an esthete, but in a very evil kind of way. And we know the vase. (laughs) We know the vase is significant because in the background, we can see a whole collection of ceramics, shelves, display shelves with glass doors full of different ceramics. And he mentions that it is a northern sung vase. The fact that he collects in this way is clearly meant to tell us something about him. And remember, he's a space noid who has occupied this section of Earth. He is looting precious artifacts from the area that he conquered. Well, and as we know, there are Mirai mentions. They're very close to where the ancient Silk Road was. Yeah, I think we are meant to read in McVeigh, the imperialist commander who occupies a region and then loots it of all of its precious treasures. Those things belong in a museum, McVeigh. He is, at the very least, highly secretive and up to something. Oh, yeah. Unclear who all he is. Is lying too. We know McVeigh lies to Rambaral in the most banal and relatable way. Tell when- him I'm not here. <laughs> Exactly. We have Rambaral on the phone for you. Tell him I'm not here. (laughs) You talk to him. We know he's concerned about Dozel finding out what he's up to. Something about the mines that he's discovered. That he doesn't want Dozel to know. And that by extension does not want Rambaral to know, which tells us Rambaral is closely allied with Dozel. Right. Between the two of them, we know Rambaral was sent to Earth by Dozel, whereas we know that McVeigh works for Kaecilia, just like Garma did. Kaecilia seems to be in charge of all the Earth occupation forces. So the big question in my mind is, does Kaecilia know whatever it is McVeigh is up to? Is she aware? Is McVeigh doing this for himself, or is this reflective of a power struggle between Kaecilia and Dozel? And of course, this connects back to Kaecilia's behavior at Garma's funeral and how she sent one of her agents to go get Shar as soon as she realized that Shar had been cut loose by Dozel. Indeed. 
the real tragedy here is that we will never get to find out what Garma's plots would have been. <laughs> Single tear for Garma. The real question is, does Girin know what his siblings are up to? I found myself wondering if McVeigh actually just found artifacts in the mine or something that's of personal value to him, but that his superiors would in no way let him just sit on top of mm -hmm. at this juncture that they would be like, no, you get your troops together and go do something actually worthwhile. Right. If he found something that he wants to keep to himself, it's probably gemstones or precious metals or artifacts, you know, something of monetary value. Since we've seen he's sort of a collector. Collector, mm -hmm. that he doesn't want to share. There's something very nefarious about collecting ancient Chinese pottery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know when that became code for I'm a villain, but... It it's... does feel coded, though, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's not like he's collecting stamps. <laughs> There's nothing very nefarious about philatelists. Although a friend of ours who worked at a stamp auction house might disagree. <laughs> you see, I disagree. I think if somebody collects stamps, it's code for either they are extremely boring or they are a total psychopath. Something about that level of precision. It's not quite the same as nefarious, though. What do you collect, listener? <laughs> what is your weird collection? What does your weird collection say about you? Tom collects wargaming and tabletop role-playing miniatures. I'm not sure what that says about him, honestly. I just like very small versions of things. What do you think is my most interesting collection? Ceramics. Ceramics everywhere. That's true. Love me some pottery. Does that make me nefarious? <laughs> it's not ancient. None of it's antique. Well, but you are nefarious. Like, I don't think <laughs> oh, the pottery oh, collecting <laughs> makes you nefarious. You just are nefarious. It's good to know. Okay. Oh, ho, 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 ho. Evil laugh. Now that McVeigh has been introduced to us, I think we have enough examples that we can contrast the Dozel faction of Xeon with the Kaecilia faction and note how the Dozel faction seems to be very stereotypically masculine. You have Rambaral. Walrus Stash. Yeah, we have we have Space Walrus, the supply officer whose name I can't remember right now, and Shar, who all have a very masculine sort of presentation. Lots of big mustaches. I don't Not know Char. about including Shar in that. Shar seems to walk along between the two. Well, that's interesting because Char seems to have switched from one faction to another. Char's his own faction. Char's a faction unto himself. Char's a cipher. And then the Kaecilia faction with Garma and McVeigh has a much prettier, more effeminized presentation. Such cheekbones. No facial hair whatsoever. That's true. Kaecilia does not have any facial hair <laughs> that we know of. <laughs> Simple to ask about a lady's grooming habits. Uh, we were going to talk about the battle. And it's a complicated battle. There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot going on. We get a new machine, the Gallop. Yep, the land cruiser ship that the Xeon forces are using. Well, and when Sela hears it's just one unit, that's when she decides she's going to go out. And we see her in the background leaving the bridge so that by the time our regular pilots get to the hangar, Sela is already in the Gundam and leaving, having told what I think is her first lie in this episode, but not her last. So yeah, we have the Gallop firing broadsides at the white base in an attempt to kind of herd it towards where Rambaral and Kozun and Akus are all waiting. And when the white base crew first picks up the Gallop before they realize that there are mobile suits involved as well, Bright is having difficulty deciding how to respond, not knowing what it is. And it's Mirai who makes the decision on her own to launch the white base and engage with the white base itself. 
Well, and to a certain degree, it's Amuro who says we shouldn't launch the Gundam right away. We should wait and see what we're dealing with and then decide. And then Bright tells everybody, okay, everybody to battle stations one, like everybody to combat readiness, but we're going to see what we're dealing with first. And then all of their plans go awry because Sela preempts them by getting into the Gundam and launching and telling Job John that she has special orders. And turning off her radio. Or maybe just forgetting to turn it on. This was a problem Ryu had the first time he went into battle. He forgot to turn his radio circuit on too. So maybe there's just a difficult to find switch or something for radio on. We finally get to know the name of the Natazaku. It's a goof. Which feels like a very silly name for a very powerful machine. The goof. Were you, you told me there was a a good reason for that. I have a thing because it's in the Japanese, it's Gufu. Gufu, okay. But it fits the naming convention with the Zaku and the Musai. Okay. It means something like a foolish man is a Gufu. So a goof. Right. But I think I think it might be in hiragana. Um, it might not be a loan word. Hmm. But anyway, Gufu means a foolish man. And like Zaku means small fry and Musai means witless. Mm-hmm. If I'm remembering correctly, Dozuru, like Dozul's Dozo. name, means failure. Wow. We see some very strategic maneuvering on both sides, actually. Especially from Ramba, who, having told us earlier in the episode that he is a guerrilla fighter, then shows it by hiding underneath the loose sand. Taking out one of the Gundam's feet, which is quite clever. He can already tell that whoever's operating it is new. And not very skilled. And by further disabling its ability to move around, makes it much more likely they'll be able to capture it. Interestingly, whereas we've seen Amuro rush into ambushes before, this time he is the one yelling, Sailor, no! <laughs> <laughs> There's no way you already took him out. It's too dangerous. Yeah. Come back. It's always easier to give advice than it is to take it. He's feeling protective of Sela, whereas within it comes. Or, or of the Gundam. That's true. I did feel like we got more of a sense of the support capabilities of the gun cannon and the gun tank in this episode. Yeah, definitely. Where the Gundam needed more support. And also, I thought it was really great seeing Amuro piloting the gun cannon because we see the gun cannon behaving a lot more like the Gundam. Mm-hmm. And we realize it's not actually that much of a difference in the suits. Definitely the Gundam is more mobile, but a lot of it comes down to the skill and style of the pilot. Mm -hmm. In a meta kind of way, what was really impressive about that is how much new animation was in this episode. There was practically no reused animation at all. I think launching the Gundam and maybe the heat rod flying through the air were the only bits of reused animation I caught. There is one scene where Amuro in the gun cannon kneels or is on all fours to fire. And even then the backgrounds were new. I thought the cells of the gun cannon itself might have been reused but on new background but only in that one shot. It was basically all new animation, including these mobile suits fighting in new ways, a lot of characters. Kind of an interesting change to have on the heels of Kukuru Doan's island, which had relatively poor animation. I do wonder, was Kukuru Doan's substandard because a lot of effort was being put into this one? I would guess, yeah. The standard approach when making anime for TV is that you have multiple teams working on multiple episodes at the same time. I actually didn't know that. So probably all the good animators were working on this one. (laughs) Whoops. 
Remembering from last episode when we talked about Kukuru's Doan's Island, I noted that the animation for that episode was farmed out to a third-party studio. So that is probably a big factor in why the animation for that one was so low quality while the Gundam team at Sunrise was working on this episode. And in fact, maybe they were spending so much time, effort, and money on this episode that they had to farm out the previous episode to a third-party studio Mm -hmm. because there were no resources left over. This one might have gone over budget, but it was worth it. Yeah, we really see the gun cannon and the gun tank taking advantage of their range. The goof is particularly susceptible to this because the goof is a close-range fighter, as we've seen time and again, and Rambaral even comments on needing to get within grappling range and not being able to with the two support mobile suits. Yeah, we see the gun tank not actually doing any damage, but firing constantly, creating a barrage that prevents the goof from taking advantage of the Gundam's damage. A moment that struck me very strongly uh, was when I believe it's Akus is trying to capture the Gundam and grabs it by the head. And at first it looks like he's just trying to like pull the head off, which we know the pilot's not in the head. So it's sort of like, well, what is what is he doing? Why? Like it feels destructive and violent, but purposeless. And then we see Sela reacting to the cameras being destroyed. Yeah. Well, we see him stick a finger through the main camera of the Gundam, right. which it turns out is actually on the forehead in a kind of third eye position. And Sayla's panic when that begins to happen. Well, she's blind in there, blind and trapped. It would be a panic inspiring situation. And she begins to sort of thrash about <laughs> more comments from the peanut gallery as Amaro is like, no, you can't just brute force it. Says the guy who brute forced it through his first couple battles. And then we get some pretty sweet mobile suit martial arts. Yeah. Amaro must have been inspired by that last episode that either did or didn't happen. Because he or by the judo, he uses the the gun cannon's fist to punch the Zaku in the head and then kick it in the chest. He also then trips it by kicking out one of the legs. Oh, I didn't notice that. That's really cool. Yeah, I'm going to go back and rewatch that as soon as we finish this. He trips the Zaku That's really to cool. knock it down so that he can drag it by its head. So much of the combat in this episode really destroys that dividing line between machine and man. The mobile suits react to being damaged the way a person would react to being injured. And the damage that's being done to them, I mean, punching them in the face, gouging out their eyes, it all feels brutal and it feels very personal and human. And when Sayla's foot has been cut, well, when Sayla's mobile suit's foot has been (laughs) cut off and she tries to stand and they say, oh, the auto balancer doesn't work or whatever and falls, falling to hands and knees. It really is like a wounded person. And you're stealing my line. I, I have in my notes from watching the episode. I don't even remember specifically what I was saying, but I was talking about the battle and I described the Gundam as wounded rather than damaged. And that wasn't conscious. That was just the way my brain reacted to that scene. I was looking at something wounded, not not a piece of damaged machinery. What really brought that home for me was when Amuro was punching and kicking the Zaku and the damage he was doing to the Zaku was replicated on the pilot to smash the Zaku's face and then to have the pilot's helmet smashed as well. Yeah, and then he drags it back to the white base, a defeated trophy. Our very first prisoner. This battle, like the previous one with the Zanzibar several episodes back, shows Hamon really in her element. Rambaral is out on the front lines, skirmishing, fighting very tactically. He has his mobile suits flanking. But Hamon is on the bridge of the gallop, in this case, commanding the battle from there. She's as much a part of his strategy as he is. There's a great equality between the two of them. 
the battle and Tom's comments about Haman actually seg really nicely into something that I kept noticing throughout the episode, which is I feel like they build a contrast between Haman and Rambaral. At various points in the episode, we see Rambaral as trusting and Haman is suspicious. You know, when they first call McVeigh, Rambaral is like, oh, didn't I tell you he's always really organized? He's always really prepared. And she doesn't trust him. She's not certain what to think of McVeigh, but her default condition is suspicious and distrustful, whereas Rambaral seems much more ready to take him as a good fellow soldier. I think we see a certain element of soldier versus politician. You know, Rambaral paints himself as a plain soldier, and to some degree that is probably true. And of the two of them, Hamon is the one who is aware of the politics of their situation. She's the one thinking about the ramifications and the factions and the optics of what they're doing. And especially in the battle itself, we see Rambaral as the more emotional of the two of them, and Hamon is the colder. When one of his wingmen is killed, Rambaral panics a little bit. Like, his immediate reaction is, oh, Oh, beep. (laughs) (laughs) This just got much more dangerous. We need to retreat now. He seems genuinely distraught and saddened by what's happened and scared for his remaining wingman. The most emotion we ever see out of Hamon is her reuniting with Rambaral. She cares about Rambaral. And it's audible in her voice. I thought it was a great vocal performance from her voice actor because when she's talking to Clamp, her second in command on the Gallop, who is probably technically in command of the Gallop, the feeling is very... Very much like... Well, she states the wingman's death very matter-of-factly. Yeah, matter-of-fact. She's just dealing with what comes up as it comes up. All you can do is deal with the situation that's in front of you. And she has that sort of attitude when he complains about not being able to deploy the Zanzibar. And she says, oh, it's experimental. But then once she goes to retrieve Rambaral and she actually sees his mobile suit still standing and waving to her, it's audible in her voice how happy she is to see him again and to know that he's still alive. Yeah, her conversation with Clamp on the bridge of the Gallop was to me a a little odd, a little confusing maybe. It felt coded and cautious in a way that I'm not sure how intentional it was. I'm not sure how much of that is the translation because we have Clamp frustrated which we looked up the word, they say fuyukai, uh, which is not exactly frustrated. It's unhappy, it's unpleasant, disagreeable, displeasing, uncomfortable. None of those are exactly the same as frustrated. <laughs> but the implication is he's decidedly out of sorts by how badly this has gone. And he questions why they couldn't bring the Zanzibar to bear. Hamon's response is that the Zanzibar is experimental, but they brought it in when they first encountered the white base. They did. They couldn't have helped that since they were in the Zanzibar and stumbled upon the white base. Right, but I I wondered a little bit if there was more to it than its purely experimental status to keep it out of this combat. So I'm going to bring in some meta-knowledge, and I don't entirely know where this comes from. (laughs) (laughs) This is, as far as I know, a very good fan theory about that conversation, and it fits so well that I'm inclined to believe it. And it may be that a particularly nuanced reading of the Japanese would pick this up, one that is beyond me. But the theory is that the Zanzibar was developed by Dozel's Space Forces, mm-hmm. and they don't want Kaecilia to know about it yet. I was wondering if it might be something like that, that if it's actually more about keeping it hidden from the other factions on their own side. 
side than it is about keeping it out of this particular combat. I think that is the subtext that we're both feeling should be there. It's not quite made. And there's the additional point, which is where I'm getting the idea that Hamon is very aware of the optics of their situation. So when she says that Dozel believes that Rambaral has the necessary fighting strength to handle the white base. So there is a sense they have to meet this expectation that it, it will be very bad for them if they struggle too much or require too much assistance to complete their mission. He has his reputation to look after. So I still find it impossible to say Hamon without it sounding like the Spanish word for ham. So I'm just going to laugh. I'm just going to say her name and giggle because it sounds like ham. And Thomas decided that Rambaral is Roomba. Roombaral. Roomba and ham. OTP. <laughs> This episode is named for Sela, Sela's Agony. And then she has almost nothing to do for the first half of it. Until she sneaks out of the bridge, steals the Gundam, and steals the show. Yeah, I confess, I am a little incredulous of her whole plan here. It seems like she was waiting for them to come upon a single Xeon ship or, or a small Xeon force that she was somehow hoping she'd be able to talk to one of them, either through capture or I don't know how else. She couldn't have done it via radio. She's been preparing for some time because she's been running simulations. Presumably in secret, but you can't simulate G-forces. Which, yes, we can. (laughs) 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 It's a little ridiculous to me. Uh, Maybe they just don't have that on the white base, but that is a thing that we simulate for pilots and astronauts all the time. And she would have had to make some very contingent assumptions about the sort of discipline that she would face when this was all over. So she either knows the regulations very, very well, or she took a massive gamble. It does feel like she took a massive gamble here. I find it highly unlikely that she would have anticipated that A, they would capture someone, that B, they would give her solitary confinement, and that C, her solitary confinement would be near enough to that person that she would be able to communicate with them in any way. See, that's what happened when all of her plans went wrong. I think her plan A was to go out on her own, be really good at piloting the Gundam, (laughs) and then capture or make direct contact with a Xeon suit or ship and ask them directly without going through the whole almost losing, getting put in solitary confinement, and only then being able to ask the prisoner questions. I wish that they had given us some hints before this episode that she was putting together that Shar was her brother. Yeah, we haven't had any indication of Sela wrestling with this question of whether or not Shar is her brother since episode two, all the way back on side seven. And we can sort of picture she sees him and thinks she recognizes him. She puts together that he must be the pilot, the Red Comet. She, you know, over time thinks about it some more and decides the Red Comet must be my brother. It makes sense that she could come to that conclusion from that interaction. But it might have been nice to have some indication of those wheels turning over the course of the show. The other thing that killed me a little bit about this whole plan, this whole situation, it felt like everyone was very lenient with her after she has seriously damaged their most important piece of equipment, after she has 
put all of them in a tremendous amount of danger. You know, it would not have been an uncommon military punishment for her to get lashes, which is to say be whipped publicly in front of the whole crew. It also would not have been unusual for her to be confined to her own quarters rather than put in a brig. Though this is the first time, short of punching Kai and slapping Amaro, that anyone has had to discipline any member of the crew. It's clear that they are a little uncomfortable with this. They know they need to punish Sela. They don't mm-hmm. really want to. I think they all respect Sela a lot, especially Bright and Mirai, who have been sharing the bridge with her all this time. And as much as they know that she did something stupid and reckless, they just sort of, they want to somehow fix the problem without really punishing her. I just think when Amaro does anything foolish, when Amaro is even just you not very skilled at using the Gundam, he gets rebuked. He gets chewed out frequently. She doesn't even get that. And maybe it's the impending knowledge that they're going to have to punish her that makes them act gentler because they know they're going to have to do something serious. Uh, But particularly when she gives such a silly reason. Her second lie. Yes. What was the silly reason? (laughs) To prove that a woman could also pilot just as well as a man. But not as well as a man with experience. And I wonder if Bright actually bought that. Well, he does ask her, and that was your only reason. I don't think he totally believes it. But he perhaps respects that she has secrets. Which, again, feels excessively gentle. But remember how he treated Ryu back when Ryu forgot to turn on his comm circuit in episode three. It was just a, you'll do better next time. Amuro gets special punishment. Right. But so some part of that is probably Amuro being a young man and they're just going to be more critical of his fighting skill. Mm -hmm. His sexism exists. It's real. But I, I assumed that the greater part of that was because he was piloting the Gundam. He was piloting their most advanced, most important, most dangerous weapon. Mm -hmm. And he just needed to be better. It was more important that he do better than that (laughs) the support people do better. And so I would have thought if Sela's gonna take the Gundam, there would be a similar kind of uh, reaction. It's been downplayed a little bit as the series has gone along, but especially in those early episodes, it really felt like between Amuro and Bright, there was a feeling of rivalry over which of them was really most essential Mm -hmm. to the white base. And as Bright has become more of a commander and as Amuro has become more of a pilot, that relationship has changed and Bright has become more of an older brother or a father sort of mentor figure to Amuro. But that feeling of the two personalities clashing has always been there between Amuro and Bright. Sela and Bright don't give me any sense of competition. And so that may be a factor as well. I suppose it's just very difficult for me to get out of the headspace of how would I react in that situation? And I would be furiously angry. (laughs) And nobody seems angry. Kai unleashes some grade A snark on her, though. Well, if it isn't the warrior woman... Once Sela is in solitary confinement, we see her express emotion. It's true. For probably the first time in the show. We see joy and tears. Tears of joy. Back in episode 10, when the white base was being carpet bombed and we saw everybody reacting to it, we noted that Sela's reaction is no reaction at all. Right. She sits stone faced in her chair. And now when she knows that her older brother is alive somewhere, real tears of real joy, but only when no one is around to see. You 
mentioned Mirai earlier and I thought of her again as we were talking about Sela because Mirai is the one who says how they will punish Sela, not Bright. Mirai is really taking up very much of a, I'm going to use the, these aren't their actual roles, but they're the roles with which I'm familiar. If Bright is the captain, Mirai is the first lieutenant. Yeah. I had it down that Mirai is becoming the executive officer. While Bright is giving commands, Mirai is deciding how they're going to be put into effect. Engage that unknown Xeon craft. Okay, we'll launch the white base. Right. Punish this insubordinate officer. Okay, we'll put her in solitary confinement for three days. And we're getting these scenes of Mirai and Bright together alone, making the decisions, leading the ship. Ship dad and ship mom. I love the vibe between them. This sense that, that she's sort of the one person who can tease him and the one person he can kind of relax around, that he doesn't have to be total confidence commander guy when he's just with her. Yeah, there's an understanding between the two of them. When he's relaxing in his quarters and she comes in and he can say, oh, I, I think I know what you want. <laughs> and she can say, oh, that's an inanimonai. <laughs> He tells her in this episode, he's like, oh, don't laugh at me. But he smiles when he says it. There's something very companionable about the two of them that I like. Yeah. And perhaps this episode is meant to give us some paralleling between Hamon and Roomba on the one hand <laughs> and Bright and Mirai on the other. I mean, to to some degree, perhaps Ramba and Hamon are what a Bright and a Mirai mature into. Especially since he's a soldier and she's a civilian, but she's a civilian doing soldier things, commanding a soldier ship. They're both partnerships, right? They're both real partnerships between men and women. Partnerships where each partner is very different and does very different things and they rely on each other. I particularly enjoyed the degree to which Ramba is the emotional one in their relationship. Uh, and frankly, Bright <laughs> might be the more emotionally volatile of Bright and Mirai. Though with Bright, it tends to be anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Mirai is cool as a cucumber as long as she has a juice box or a radio antenna to chew on. <laughs> Just about the episode on the whole, as we said earlier, there's almost no reused animation. There's a ton of new animation, not a lot of still shots or pans. It's really quite a beautiful episode. I thought it was one of the best that we've seen so far in terms of the animation and the voice acting, the writing, an extremely strong episode. There was that very interesting uh, visual and audio cue. There's a moment when Rambaral, I think, has first led the Gundam into a trap when he bursts out of the sand. When it gives us a shot of him in the cockpit. And as has often happened, they change the color scheme to something very unreal, this time blue. And the musical cue was really unsettling. It reminded me of Kill Bill. Oh, yeah. The... Like the... Exactly. <laughs> when everything is going to go wrong for somebody. Yeah. When it's murdering time. <laughs> So yeah, we had new music in this episode along with everything else. And it wasn't until this episode that I noticed, I think the last couple of episodes have had very few speaking roles, probably to cut down on the cost of voice actors. Mm -hmm. Whereas this episode, we got the whole cast talking and a lot, a lot of money and time was spent on this episode and it really shows. Hey, it's real world geography time again. Lob Lake is a real place, although it's actually usually written as Lop Lake or Lop Nur. Nur is Mongolian for lake, and Lop is such an old name that it doesn't actually mean anything in any of the local regional languages. 
The lake is in the Xinjiang region of China. That's the farthest northwestern part of the country and the part that's inhabited by the Uyghur people, as well as many other ethnic minorities. The lake is near the center of Xinjiang, which puts it relatively close to the modern-day borders of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, and Mongolia. This is an arid region, with less than 10% of the land being suitable for human habitation now, and we can probably assume that things are even worse in UC-79. After we first watched the episode, we were a bit skeptical about the lake's supposed wandering qualities, but it turns out that that part is real too, or it was. We'll get more on that in a second. It was one of those factoids that felt just weird enough to be real. <laughs> Lop Lake lies at the terminus of the Tarim River, but the Tarim River changes its course occasionally, alternating between two or three different terminal lake basins. Based on maps and records of expeditions to the region, we know that one such shift definitely occurred sometime between 1650 and 1867, and human intervention into the flow of the Tarim River did cause several more changes in the early 20th century. There was an ancient kingdom called Lulan on the banks of Lop Lake that may have vanished because the lake on which they depended decided to wander elsewhere. Can you imagine as an ancient civilization, you must have thought you were horrifically cursed. Oh, yeah. If the lake you depended on suddenly dried up. The lake that's been there forever suddenly doesn't exist anymore. That's like your gods are dead or they hate you. Yeah, you've seriously offended your gods. If that happens to your civilization. Or it's the end of the world, right? Also, yes. All of this makes Lop Lake an interesting place to choose to set this episode. The Wandering Lake thing is cool, yeah, but by 1979, Lop Lake wasn't there anymore. And I don't mean it was at the other location. I mean, it was gone. In 72, the Chinese government built the Great West Sea Reservoir, cutting off the water supply to the Tarim River Valley, including Lop Lake and absolutely devastating the extensive but fragile ecosystem of poplar forests that had once lived in the region around the lake. And Lop Lake is also where China conducted their nuclear weapon tests. Starting in 1964, they conducted at least 45 nuclear tests before agreeing to end the program in 1996. These tests included all the standard ones, dropping bombs, launching nuclear missiles, and detonating weapons underground and in the atmosphere. So the real Lop Lake happens to sit at the intersection of two of the running themes in Gundam, that human activity is going to just wreck the Earth's ecosystem so that it can no longer support human life, and that our insistence on building bigger and badder weapons of mass destruction is eventually going to destroy us all. In the episode, it feels like a bit of a throwaway, the whole salt plotline. <laughs> <laughs> Just an excuse to go to Lop Lake. But salt has actually been hugely important in world history and including in wartime. In the American Civil War, for example, the Union Army went to great lengths, including a forced march and 36 hours of fighting to capture a rebel salt processing plant. The phrase rebel salt processing plant sounds <laughs> so much more interesting than I bet it actually was. Probably, yeah. Well, and the South gave an exemption from conscription to any able-bodied men working in salt processing. <laughs> they were so desperate for salt. Mm -hmm. Napoleon's soldiers retreating from Moscow are thought to have died in greater numbers due to salt deficiency. Their wounds just weren't healing. Weren't early Roman soldiers paid in salt? I found a very interesting discussion about this on Reddit. Essentially arguing that our basis for that idea is something Pliny wrote, not as something that he had personally seen or experienced, but as something that happened even long before he was writing. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about it in kind of a vague, like, oh, yeah, back in the day, they even paid soldiers in salt. 
Um, okay, okay. But if we throw out everything that Pliny said without good sources, then we know practically nothing about huge swaths of Roman history. There's further debate as to whether they were paid insult itself, if they were given a monetary stipend to use to buy their own salt, if salt was sort of a, a unit of pay, but they were actually paid in currency. And then, of course, the discussion diverges because they discuss how for a big period of Roman history, soldiers weren't paid at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they basically got to keep what they looted. It's interesting to think about when precisely we became aware that people need salt to live. Because for big parts of history, the main reason you would need salt would be to preserve other food. You'd be using it to pack and to cure fish and meat, vegetables, everything the army needs <laughs> mm -hmm. to be on the march for months at a time. And people would probably have gotten most of the salt they needed from those salt-packed foods. But we've known for a long time that animals need salt. That's why in you know barns, people will put out salt licks for horses or for cows, just a block of salt. Yeah. And they call it a salt lick because the animal will just... <laughs> God, that's a horrible sound effect. <laughs> I love it. Access to salt not only influenced morale, but lack of salt in the diet leads to what they call hyponatremia, which just means low blood sodium, but it causes horrible symptoms. Mild symptoms include poor balance, decreased ability to think, pronounced confusion, People experience nausea, vomiting, short-term memory loss, lethargy, irritability, muscle weakness, and hyponatremia can even lead to seizures, coma, and death. According to one source I looked at, hyponatremia is extremely common in endurance athletes. Something like 10% of all endurance athletes experience it. Hence the invention of Gatorade in 1965. You're probably not used to hearing the name of the New Zealand antagonist pronounced like Makveh. And that's fair, especially when you see it spelled M-apostrophe-Q-U-V-E. But the Japanese original for his name is Makube. In fact, prior to 2000, his name was usually transliterated as Makube, spelled M-A-K-U-B-E, with the emphasis on the Ma part of the name. There's no V sound in Japanese, so when pronouncing loan words with V sounds in them, you'll usually use the B sound, and so to our ears, Makube sounds like Makave. You can still find his name spelled the older way on ancient fan pages all over the Internet Archive. But in 2000, the translators working on the dub decided to go with Makuve, with the emphasis on the ku part of the name. Some fans have pointed out that this makes it look a little bit like his name is derived from Swahili. I don't know if there's any special significance or truth to that, and I'd let it go without comment, except remember the Zanzibar Rambaral commands in episode 12? Well, Zanzibar is one name for an archipelago off the coast of Tanzania, where the local language is Swahili. But two things is just a coincidence, so maybe I should now mention that Amuro's mother is named Kamaria, another name with a Swahili origin. We know that Tomino was consciously creating names by mixing together various contemporary languages and changing things just a little bit in order to give a post-national feeling to the future that he was imagining. Perhaps he always intended Makuve slash Makuve's name to sound like Swahili, and the change in 2000 was meant to reassert what had always been his intention. Or maybe not. The point is, there's no real right answer to whether you should call him Makuve or Makube or Makve. Just don't call him M-Cube. <laughs> Kuve. 
When we're introduced to McVeigh, he's in his office, which is full of a massive collection of ceramics in a display cabinet along one wall. And he has one particular piece out to admire and flick for some reason. Ding. The framing of this shot really emphasizes the importance of this pottery to him. He doesn't appear at all until we've been staring at this vase for long seconds. I just realized what it reminds me of. It is very like the shots from, say, Inspector Gadget <laughs> and the <laughs> and the shows that Inspector Gadget was referencing, where you see the villain's hands holding and stroking his evil cat, but you don't see the villain himself. McVeigh tells us that this particular vase is a Song Dynasty piece. The Song Dynasty is a period of over 300 years, from 960 CE to 1279 CE. Song ceramics are characterized by simple, elegant shapes and subtle, monochrome glazes. The pieces are very rare and highly prized. The most famous and extensive museum collections are at the British Museum in London, the Museum of Oriental Ceramics in Osaka, and the National Palace Museum in Taipei. None of those are in mainland China. No. Gee, I wonder why. I don't think the Song <laughs> Dynasty ruled England. <laughs> Taiwan or Japan. The point we're making here is that the bulk of these collections are probably looted <laughs> or or got by some other nefarious means. These are the sorts of art objects that are auctioned by world famous auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's for millions of US dollars. There may actually be some significance in the decision to use a Song Dynasty piece here. Part of that being that the Song Dynasty is divided into two sections historically, the Northern Song period and then the Southern Song period. And the dividing line for the two was a brutal invasion that forced the Song out of their northern parts of their empire and inflicted pretty terrible suffering and devastation on the Song people, which might kind of be like when Xeon invaded the Earth. I think also that it is it is a subsection of ancient Chinese pottery that is highly prized by collectors, that is very rare. The core of the British Museum collection is one individual person's private collection that he then gave to the museum. If there was one thing that Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan had in common, it was racism. Sorry, I meant callous disregard for human life. Sorry, I meant messianic delusions. Sorry, limited access to raw materials. Hang on, I'll start again. If there was one thing Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan had in common, it was their passion for looting or destroying the cultural, historic, and artistic heritage of every other country they occupied. Starting with Japan's occupation of Korea in 1910, and then continuing through until 1945, the German and Japanese armies and governments conducted a grand-scale pillage that saw just enormous numbers of artifacts, as well as good old-fashioned booty like precious metals and gemstones, stolen from the conquered territories and transferred en masse back to the Imperial homeland land, whichever imperial homeland it was. Some of these artifacts ended up in museums, others enriched the collections of powerful individuals, and some ended up hidden away in secret storehouses waiting for the end of the war. Over in Germany, Hitler considered himself to be a connoisseur of fine art, and because he was also a megalomaniac, he concluded that everything he liked was good art, and everything he disliked, which included modern art, cubism, futurism, etc., was degenerate. And since he decided that he was going to conquer all of Europe, well, it only made sense for all the good art to be consolidated into a central European art museum, which, of course, was going to be called the Führer Museum. And it would be in Germany, of course. 
The plan for the degenerate art was slightly different. It would also be collected, and it would also be displayed, so that it could be appropriately mocked. One such exhibition for mockery actually did happen in Munich in 1937. The plan was that after the exhibition it would be sold, and the proceeds would help to fund the Nazi regime. That's fascinating. I had never heard that before. I assume this backfired on them horribly? You assume correctly. <laughs> they made a slight miscalculation, which is that because they had just publicly declared all of this art to be worthless, no one wanted to buy it, and the people who liked it didn't want to fund the Nazi regime. They solved this problem by just burning it, including almost 5,000 pieces in one fire in 1939. This did inspire some of the people who actually liked it to come forward and do some purchasing. Many of the purchasers at that point were Swiss museums, which is how a lot of this art ended up in Switzerland. Then, during the war, the Nazis seized hundreds of thousands of art objects from all over Europe. Theoretically, these were intended for the Führer Museum. And like everything they did, this was systematic, militarized, and ruthless. There were central collection points, armies of art historians who would appraise the pieces, and then storage in secret military bases throughout Germany, in tunnels, old castles, and, most famously, in old salt mines. In one such mine, in a place called Merkers, among the many stolen treasures were 27 Rembrandt paintings. Holy cow. And a hundred tons of gold. <laughs> in another mine, in Altasay, they stockpiled 12,000 pieces of looted art in an old salt mine. And when the war started turning against them, they planned to destroy it all with eight 500 kilogram bombs, rather than let anyone else have it. I wonder what is in McVeigh's mine, and what his superiors think is in his mine. <laughs> And like I said before, Japan actually got a head start on the Nazis. Hitler only took power in 1933, and while the Nazis did start by looting art within Germany, they didn't have a foreign country to plunder until the occupation of Czechoslovakia in 1939. And by that point, Japan had already been looting Korea for nearly 30 years, and Manchuria for nearly a decade. The Japanese motivations were a little bit different. Japan took more of an old-school, colonialist attitude to the regions they occupied. Korea and Manchuria initially, but eventually the Indochina Peninsula, the Philippines, Taiwan, and so on. They believed that the arts and cultures of the regions they occupied were primitive and backward. And they felt that these people were in need of education and reform by the superior Japanese. And to the extent that the art and artifacts from those regions was good or significant in the Japanese mindset, well, clearly such primitive and backward people could not be trusted to look after their own cultural heritage. It would be much better, much safer, and much more appreciated if all of those treasures were just properly stored in Japan, which, ugh. But also sounds so familiar. Like I said, old school colonialism. Not for nothing, Japan modeled much of its colonial activity on that of European countries. This took an especially awful form in Korea, where Japan combined this patronizing colonial approach to looting with a 35-year-long program of cultural eradication. This resulted in massive amounts of Korean artifacts, especially historically significant documents, just being destroyed in order to replace Korean culture and identity with Japanese imperial culture. And then, of shorter duration but broader application, starting in 1940 in Manchuria and other parts of China occupied by the Japanese army, the Japanese pursued what they called Jinmetsu Sakusen, the burn-to-ash strategy, which we now call Sanko Sakusen, the three alls policy. Kill all, burn all, loot all. I definitely experienced some creepy crawlies when Tom said that. Shivers. So that's all awful. But I do want to leave you on a slightly more fun note. 
I had a lot of trouble finding reliable sources about the Japanese looting of East Asia because in the years since the war, an incredibly popular conspiracy theory has grown up around it. And it's actually pretty fun, so I'm going to share it with you. In the broad strokes, during the war, or sometime before it, Emperor Hirohito himself designated the eldest of his brothers, the Prince Chichibu, to head a secret organization called Kin no Yuri, the Golden Lily, and it was charged with looting the treasures of Asia for the personal enrichment of the imperial family. This organization took the pick of the plunder, especially gold and gems, collected it in Singapore in secret, and then shipped it to underground storage facilities in the Philippines, where the local Japanese commander, General Yamashita, was said to have built a vast labyrinth of booby-trapped tunnels to hide all of it. Yamashita even, because this is how these stories always go, killed the architects who designed the complex <laughs> by burying them alive inside it so that the secrets of its construction would die with them. At the end of the war, the U.S. Army captured Yamashita and tortured him, or perhaps his personal driver, until they gave up the secrets of the treasure, then executed them both to make sure it never got out. The majority of the treasure was secretly retrieved by U.S. intelligence and was then used either to fund Japan's economic revival after the war or ah. or as an unlimited and untraceable slush fund to fund the CIA's international fight against communism. Oh, my God. But the story goes they never did find all of it. It's all pretty far-fetched, and there's no historical support for any of this. But that hasn't actually stopped hordes of treasure hunters from swarming the Philippines looking for remnants of the fabled gold. They haven't found anything yet, and occasionally they die, but that doesn't seem to be stopping them, or the rumors. It really feels like there ought to be an Indiana Jones-style adventure film about that. Yeah, it is. It basically is an Indiana Jones adventure story. There are tales about these underground tunnels booby-trapped with gas mines and the skeletons of Japanese soldiers still lingering there. Spike traps, poison. Well, and the things you hear online about this are people like, my friend's cousin is a treasure hunter in the <laughs> Philippines, and he found this tunnel, and it goes deep into the mountain, and at the end, there's a stone wall, but there's a hole in it just large enough for one person's arm. Ah. And if you put your arm inside, there's a lever, and then the lever reveals an arrow that points towards a symbol that we can't understand. <laughs> and then here's a sketch of the symbol. Wow. Yeah, it's nuts. The case of Sela and Shar got us wondering, were there other World War II stories of siblings on opposite sides of the war? It turns out there are, and a few very dramatic examples. Hitler's own nephews, William and Heinz, for one. William fled to the U.S. after Hitler's rise to power and was a vocal critic of his uncle. Heinz joined the Wehrmacht. William joined the U.S. Navy as a pharmacist, although he had to write to the U.S. president to get the Navy to accept him. Heinz was captured and executed by the Soviets. You can sort of imagine the Navy recruitment officer being like, hey, we've got an application to join the Navy from some guy named Hitler. <laughs> yeah, the article I read about them mentions that after the war, he changed his name. Wouldn't you? Yes, absolutely. Well, I know he had a couple of kids here, so I'm just wondering when in their lives he told them. did he tell them, hey, your great uncle was the Hitler? Even more dramatic, if you can believe that's possible were cases of two sets of brothers, the Akune brothers and the Oka brothers. The Akune brothers were born or raised in the United States, where their family ran a grocery business. However, the whole family returned to Japan after their mother died. Shortly after, the two eldest, Harry and Ken, returned to the United States for work. They were interned after Pearl Harbor, and when offered, jumped at the chance to serve in military intelligence. 
Two younger brothers, Saburo and Shiro, Shiro just 15 years old, were conscripted into the Japanese Imperial Army. Saburo as a spotter for kamikaze attacks, and Shiro interviewing recruits at a naval base. Remember, historically, there have been 15-year-old soldiers before. After the war, Ken and Harry were both stationed in Japan, but experienced constant mistrust from both sides, including their own family. Their father eventually intervened, easing the family tensions. Yeah, apparently, things came to such a head that there was almost a fist fight among the family, and the father had to step in and said something along the lines of, the war is over. The Oka family ran a hotel for migrants and farm workers in 1920s California, but returned to Japan not long after in 1937. The three oldest brothers, Isao, Masao, and Chikara, returned to the United States and were drafted after Pearl Harbor. Isao was transferred out of the famous Nisei Regiment, the 442nd, to become an intelligence officer and was later called the Voice of American Propaganda. He did Japanese-language radio broadcasts from the Philippines, including the reading of the Potsdam Declaration, the terms of Japan's surrender. Masao was put on garrison duty. Chikara, also called Don, was in active duty and saw combat on the island of Tinian. This included being dive-bombed by his brother Takeo, a pilot in the Imperial Navy. Sadly, Takeo was shot down on his flight back and died in the crash. A fifth brother, Teiji, was also conscripted into the Japanese army right at the end of the war and was wounded when the transport he was on was sunk on its way to Okinawa, which might well be what saved his life. Yeah. And imagine the astronomically unlikely odds. In the whole Pacific, all of the soldiers, all of the pilots, that one brother would dive bomb another brother. I don't remember from which set it is now, but in interviews that they've done, one of the brothers mentions (laughs) that of course it occurred to him that he might wind up on a battlefield staring down the gun of one of his own brothers. It's the stuff of nightmares. And of course you wouldn't want to kill each other, but you would need to survive. (laughs) So when we were discussing the episode, we talked about that really eerie musical cue that plays when Rambo Rawl bursts forth from the sand and slashes the Gundam's foot in half with his heat rod. And I mentioned how it reminded me of the Time to Kill music from Kill Bill. I pulled the audio for those two, so we're going to play them side by side, and you can see what we mean about the similarity. So here's what plays when Rambo Rawl attacks. <laughs> And here's the piece from Kill Bill. I know that musical cue from Kill Bill was not written for Kill Bill. It's a piece of music for something else. It was actually the theme song to an old detective show called Ironsides. And it was written by Quincy Jones. That's the opening (laughs) of the song. It then turns into sort of smooth jazz noodling around, which is very different from the feeling of the opening. So when does the song date from? Ironside debuted in 1967, and the song was written for it. It was the first TV theme song composed using a synthesizer. Very cool. Yeah. And that gives us the first point of comparison between the two, which is that neither one sounds like the sound an instrument makes. Both of them have an electronic, unreal kind of feeling to them, more like alarms than like music. Yeah. I wonder if what we're really hearing is a stylistic shift in music generally. 
while a lot of Gundam's music does not have that more electronic feel, we do get bits and pieces here and there where they're experimenting <laughs> with some newer sound. And here I think it's used very well because it does feel eerie. It's kind of like the uncanny valley when we talk about computer-generated depictions of people where it's not quite real enough, but also too real for us to just <laughs> see it like a cartoon. And in this case, it doesn't sound quite right, but it's close enough that it really gets under your skin. I think comparing the sounds to sirens was very appropriate. In both cases, they essentially are. It's like, warning, warning, <laughs> danger. <laughs> and in both cases, the sound gets louder. It's a warning about something dangerous that is getting closer to you, which is part of why they're so scary. It's part of why they get you in that way. They're also both synced up with visual cues. In Kill Bill, they're always accompanied by those extreme close-ups. In the case of Rambaral, we see his cockpit go blue. Yeah. In the way that we've seen the cockpits change color at moments of extreme emotion. And we know this is Rambaral going in for the kill. This is not calm plotting Rambaral. This is Rambaral ready to finish it. Next time on episode 1.17, Unnecessary. Don't look at the episode name! Someone doesn't understand tactics. It's a me, Amuro. The least sexualized breasts in anime. Exploding teeth. When Haro's attack. I've made a huge tiny mistake. Sasuga Amuro. I hate it when mom and dad fight. And a special guest star. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all the podcast things. Like, subscribe, share, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast. Check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for episodes, show notes, and more. And you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us directly by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Antique vases are meant to be flicked on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I don't know what I did. Apparently the trick is to pick up the box, look at it, fiddle with knobs, and put it back down again. The thing about collections is that's stuff, and then that stuff eventually has to get packed up and move. want us to know their best girls from whatever Gundam series they're watching right now. <laughs> I believe they're watching the 8th Mobile Suit Team from 1996, so we are quite some years away at this point. Mm-hmm.